Today's a significant day in our newsroom. No, not because it's Earth Day. It is Earth Day. Great day. We should think about the Earth. It is our final day as a newsroom at 1801 Superior, where Aww. the Plain Dealer newsroom has been for decades. Uh, there is a building that opened there in 2001 that we're moving out of. The last day for people to clear out their things is today. And I counted it up. There's less than two dozen people who were here when the building opened, who are here as it closes. I put them into my subtext account this morning. But my argument is it's not about the building. It's about the people. And we have great ones. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm here with my colleagues, some of those great ones, Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, Courtney Astolfi, you got, none of you know this building when it opened, but are you feeling some melancholy after having spent time there? Definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I, I spent a, my entire career working out of that building until the last couple of years. <laughs> See, I just have and a John to die. I don't feel that at all. Go ahead, Lisa. No, I was going to say, as, a, as an editorial board member, I was only at, down there once or twice a week, but I, I'm really going to miss going to that space. It, it, look, it was a great building, very dynamic when we moved in. We filled the whole thing, and now we don't even fill a corner uh, because of the way the fortunes of media have changed. But um, So I'm glad it's going to be populated. It'll, it'll have lots of people in it that help build the economy of that section of town. Our newsroom remains because it is about the people. Let's begin. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine signed the bill to save commercial property owners millions of dollars while sticking homeowners with the tab. But Laura Hancock reported some numbers that put this into perspective about just how much damage DeWine's signature does to school districts. Layla, Laura Hancock had been working on a story for a while to put this all into perspective. So she was loaded with detail on the day he put his pen to the bill. Yeah, this is bad, bad, bad. DeWine, yeah, he went ahead, signed that bill that hamstrings the school districts from challenging the undervalued properties at boards of revisions. And Laura's reporting tells us that in the Cleveland School District, that could result in an 80% reduction from what the district on average has recently won in property tax disputes at the Cuyahoga County Board of Revision. According to CMSD, the district has challenged or defended the values of $43.1 million in property from 2015 to 2020 an average of $7.2 million a year at the Cuyahoga County Board of Revision. If House Bill 126 would have been lawed during those years, the district would have been able to gain or retain only $7.3 million in values or an average of $1.2 million a year. So, you know, a group known as the Ohio 8 made up of superintendents and, and teacher union presidents from, from eight urban school districts, including Cleveland, had asked DeWine for a veto based on facts like that. And they said that the bill would make it more difficult to defend challenges to those existing revenue streams. And, and our, our districts would be unable to offset the loss from filing increased complaints. Also, the changes could likely result in the annual loss of millions of dollars and increased tax burden on both homeowners and those commercial property owners whose valuation is fairly established those please fell on deaf ears i and, and i want to point out this is not taking extra money from commercial property owners this is about the school board making sure they pay the actual value of their building mike dewine is going to stop that he did with that signature stopping the ability of school districts to make sure people pay what they owe it's a remarkable 
remarkable move. I mean, it, and it's anti-city. I mean, I th- we, we all know that in the Columbus State House and in the governor's office for a decade now, they've been sticking it to the cities to benefit rural areas. But I, this is amazing. I mean, I, this gives the Democratic candidate for governor some really good material for the campaign heading into November. Mike DeWine is in the pocket of commercial property owners. I don't get it. Yeah. You know, what's sad to me is that most people are kind of chalking this up to, well, you know, DeWine is a Republican and he's facing a primary in May and he's trying to appease all the special interests. And you would think that that would have led him to do the right thing by his constituents and veto this thing. But instead, he's just kind of hoping that that his constituents aren't paying attention. He's counting on them not understanding what harm this will inflict upon them. And he just wants to I guess spoon feed them the Republican talking point, like like the one from the Ohio Chamber of Commerce guy who said, you know, House Bill 126 will no longer allow school districts to challenge the decisions of local government officials to squeeze additional government funding from real property owners. I mean, that sounds that sounds like that you know would play well with most uh, most Republican voters, but that's not. That that's that's not how it's going to affect their real lives. I mean, they're they're actually going to be hurting from this. I, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I just can't imagine that Cranley or Whaley won't use this in their campaign. I also got to imagine there'll be a lawsuit. Right. The districts will sue. I mean, th- this is an unconstitutional taking from homeowners. You're, you're basically creating a class of people that don't have to pay their fair share with this bill. And that is a constitutional issue. So I suspect that they're already talking about it. I look, I get why the legislature does it. The legislature, as we know through HB6, completely can be bought and paid for. Mike DeWine signing that is a surprise. I mean, mm-hmm. that does cross a line to to do special favors, right. look, it's, it's HB6 all over again, right? You signed a bill to give tons of money from, from Ohioans to a private private utility. I guess, I guess there's a precedent. Mike DeWine signed that bill too. So I guess he's got a history now of stealing money from basic residents and putting it into the pockets of wealthy businesses. A shocker. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How likely is it that the new Cuyahoga County Jail will be built on the toxic site that is the number one choice of a site selection committee? Courtney, there were a lot of caveats put onto this that makes it sound like this will be a slow walk now. Yeah, well, while they, while the steering committee deciding the fate of the jail did sign off on the site, you know, to continue vetting it and checking it out, that's contingent on a, on a bunch of things, um, probably most importantly of which are the environmental factors we've been talking about for a few weeks now. The site is the former location of a standard oil refinery, and members of the committee, by approving these amendments, kind of wanted to make sure that these environmental factors were remediated before, you know, we put shovels in the ground. And and it was crafted in such a way that, that the decision is contingent on whether those environmental factors are, are, are okay in the future before we move forward. Yeah, what, what was interesting about this is there, there originally was going to be a vote on this site, and then a group of people met with Pernell Jones, the council president, to say, look, let's work out something. And so they built in what they call this phase two environmental test before they go any further. So we'll, people will know exactly what's in the ground there, exactly what it'll cost to clean it up because of all these, these fears. 
they didn't pass that at their next meeting because there was a the, we had discovered the 40 years ago the state wouldn't build a prison there and so that became very controversial but they did a couple of other things yesterday as well that will impede the movement on this until everybody's sure right yeah they, so they want a better you get what are yeah they? so part of part of what the group is still going to do now is um continue investigating other sites that was supposed to be kind of put to bed with this vote but they're going to still keep looking at other places and they also agreed to have more community engagement on potential jail sites in the future you know there's been an outcry that that the people really haven't had a voice on whether they think these are good locations and then thirdly um they're going to compel a third party quote fair and unbiased review of whether the current facility downtown can be renovated now the committee years ago already looked at that option even even held some stuff up back years ago to further vet that option but they want more vetting of that option now well because yeah. there there there's at least one member of the committee who wasn't on the committee back then right well yeah there's a new public defender now so his predecessor was yeah. there and part of that he just personally wasn't there's some other new folks on the committee just turn of office turn of leadership new faces now Part of this, though, is there is a rising set of voices saying, why can't we make the old one work? You, you hear that from candidates for county executive and elsewhere. And so this committee wants to put that to bed. You know what they have working against them. You know, we think about the jail in the recent years where people were dying and the conditions are bad and the guards have been bringing in drugs. It's been a, it's been a disaster. But the jail, that building had. 40 years without that controversy for 40 years it operated without having people die in large numbers and all the misbehavior it 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 does not fit modern jailing practices it, 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 it's not efficient you could save a lot of money on personnel if you have a a two-story jail that's spread out and you know we've done stories explaining all this but there's there's a group of people now saying half billion dollars is a lot of money can't we make it work? It always did. I think having a third party do it takes out all the conflicts that exist. And a third party, I suspect, is going to look at it and say, are you kidding? You know, th this is antiquated technology. It's not even well made. Get out of it. Build a new jail. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of security concerns related to building a vertical jail. That was the practice back in the day, decades ago. But research, you know, a vertical jail doesn't let inmates like really get much sunshine and think about what that does for your mental health when you're locked in a box for, for months on end. Um, you know, the current jail doesn't allow for in pod, that's the area where inmates are kept, medical care. This new jail anticipates easier access to medical mental health care. So while the current one sure could be retrofitted, it would just flout a lot of best practices, it seems. I, I do get the feeling, though, that all of these caveats that have been put in will slow this down so they won't get a shovel in the ground this year, which oh, is yeah. what some of them <laughs> wanted to, so that the next administration, which is going to have to see this through, will have some say. You know, Lee Weingart doesn't want to build a jail, but he's a Republican, so he's got a snowball's chance of hell winning. Chris Ronane, the Democrat, who would seem to be the odds-on favorite here, uh, I think does recognize a new jail is needed, but he's going to want to make sure fiscal responsibility is in play. And there are a whole lot of people that don't trust that that exists right now. So getting it to the next administration 
uh, probably isn't the worst idea. I got the sense that, I mean, this is a five-hour-long meeting. I think the choices were this this coming up with this crazy plan that tries to appease everybody or dissolve this committee <laughs> because, uh, I mean, literally, okay, they, they unanimously voted to to continue vetting this property, and this is our site, except we're also going to vet other sites, and we're going to have a review of whether we can go forward with the current site and, and renovate that site, and we're also going to, I mean, it's like the, there's so many, there's, a, there's so many other I mean, it's like something for everybody built into this. And I think they had to do that or they weren't going to leave that room. Yeah, yeah, Well, definitely. but remember, they, and there were people in the audience that were applauding that they took these moves. I mean, it was nice to see the public show up to register its feelings on what's going on. Look, I think this comes down to a lack of trust. Nobody trusts this administration because of all of its fumbling over the last eight years. And I, I think that's in the background for a whole lot of people. So we'll see. It was an interesting solution. I, I imagine that the people that want the jail to be in that site will try to rush these things. That will be hard to do. It's Today in Ohio. What are the big four of Cleveland Cultural Institutions and how much do they say they mean to the Northwest Ohio economy? I always have skepticism, Lisa, when you get studies by people who say, look how much we're worth to the economy. But I have to say, it does look like the science behind this one is probably sound. Yes, and it's Northeast Ohio that we're talking about. This is a report that was done by, done by Tourism Economics, which is a division of Oxford Economics about the year 2019. And no surprises here. The big four cultural in institutions are the Cleveland Orchestra, Playhouse Square, the Cleveland Museum of Art, and the Rock Hall of Fame, all on the east side, just saying. So they said in this report that there were 2.6 million attendees to these institutions, 1.4 million outside of Cuyahoga County, $800 million in economic impact, 1 million overnight stays, uh, $317 million in off-site food and beverage purchases, lodging, retail, and then uh, half a billion dollars in direct local spending. So, you know, the the money, the, the numbers are there. They also, you know, employ 6,800 people with a payroll of $261 million. Yeah, and this, of course, comes, I think, as plans are being made to figure out a way to replace the dwindling cigarette tax that supports the arts. So they're showing, look how much this is valued at. It's a good return on the investment. Uh, I expect we'll start to see some discussion soon on you know, the tax vaping or the tax I don't know, marijuana, uh, but we'll see. <laughs> also, the Ohio Citizens for Arts did a study, and this is, you know, for the, uh, the entire arts and culture scene in Northeast Ohio, and they found that arts in this area is an $18 billion payroll with uh, 329,000 jobs involved in arts and culture jobs. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. How big was the first quarter of the year for Ohio when it comes to investment by venture capitalists? How much money was invested and in how many different deals? Layla, a good news story for Ohio. 
Yeah. Reporter Sean McDonald reports that just over $900 million was invested across 48 venture capital deals in Ohio in in the first three months of 2022. That's one of the biggest quarters for the state in recent history. The dollar amount raised in in 2022's first three months has only been exceeded one time when $1.2 billion was raised in the second quarter of 2021. Otherwise, it's the most money invested in a quarter since at least 2014. Two deals in the Cincinnati area and one involving society brands from Jackson Township led the state. Each of those had over $200 million invested. Society brands specifically had $204 million. That's the the Amazon aggregator. They announced the largest fundraising round in the region. The company plans to put that money to uh, to work acquiring brands that that sell on Amazon. You know, the list is full of just, you know, amazing, brilliant ideas. It's awesome that this stuff is coming out of Ohio. But uh, here's a couple examples from, from Sean's list. Cleveland Kitchen, which is formerly known as Cleveland Kraut. I love Cleveland Kraut, so I'm so excited about this. <laughs> They're a fermented foods company, and they have grown into a national brand. They've landed at number 341 on Inc.com's list of 5,000 fastest growing private companies. Uh, their investment was $17 million. Mediview XR, uh, $10 million investment. The Cleveland-based medtech company uses augmented reality to create surgical navigation and teleprocedure platforms. That software basically gives surgeons a, a 3D x-ray that shows the inside of a patient and their internal anatomy to a surgeon. That's Awesome. And then Orthobrain, which I know we've written about and talked about, $9 million investment. That's uh, orthodontist-led tech, a startup that brings braces to more people using software and artificial intelligence. And the company was kind of created to help kind of um, bridge the the shortage of orthodontists by, um, you know, uh, helping dentists provide orthodontics like traditional braces and clear aligners uh, to more people. So, uh, yeah, just great stuff good news you know it's the kind of story that we weren't doing a year ago and we realized we needed to have a business reporter and sean has just done a tremendous job giving that perspective to our coverage good story by him we'll be talking about another in a bit it's today in ohio statehouse reporter andrew tobias wrote an analysis of where the legislative gerrymandering case might go now that federal judges have said they will impose the unconstitutional map if we don't get a sound one before may 28th courtney what are the possibilities yeah so it sounds like the most likely possibility here is that the republicans on the redistricting commission are just going to not agree to meet until that deadline and then boom we get the unconstitutional map thanks to the federal court. So it it doesn't seem like there's a lot of options here. You know, Andrew reported that, you know, the Dems, the Democrats on the redistricting commission have few options. They, they can try and get their colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle who are on the commission to meet, but the Republicans don't really have much incentive to meet. As uh, Bill cites Cincinnati Republican who's in House leadership, he, he tweeted... Too bad, so sad, we win again, the game's over, you lost. So it seems like that's the... Bill Seitz, the longtime and continuing supporter of the corrupt House Bill 6. Very good judgment there. There There is the chance, if that's what happens, the Republicans do nothing... The three-judge panel does what it says. There's an audit, There's a direct appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So 
I imagine that the people that have been fighting this would take this to the U.S. Supreme Court, because why not? I, I also wonder whether Maureen O'Connor will use the powers of contempt of court to force the Republicans to do what they're supposed to do, which is to meet. I mean, to completely defy the orders of the court. They have that May deadline coming up. I, I just I can't imagine, given what's gone on so far, that she would say, okay, I'm done, let it go. You know, Andrew reported, yeah, the, the Supreme Court could pursue contempt, but as, as recently as last week, it rejected requests to do that. So maybe this does change her tune, or, or maybe not. Well, there is the May, whatever it is, second or third deadline for the commission to come back with the honest map. So that's well in advance of the May 28th deadline. So if they don't do it, I think they're going to be in trouble. I, I just I don't see Maureen O'Connor having gone this far down the road saying, yeah, OK, let it go. We'll see. It's a good story by Andrew. Check it out on Cleveland.com. And you're listening to Today in Ohio. Sean McDonald wanted to get behind the government statistics on inflation and find out where people in Northeast Ohio are getting hit hardest by prices increases. We ran the story today, and I already got a complaint from a reader saying, why is bad news like that on the front page? Because inside the paper, you had a story saying unemployment is the lowest it is in 40 years. My answer is, this is what local people are telling us, and they have problems with price increases. Lisa, what did Sean find? Well, he looked at 108 responses that were gleaned from your letter from the editor subtext account and he went after and talked to some of them to find out what their what their issues were with inflation and how it was affecting their lives out of those 108 responses 66 said food and grocery bills affected them the most and so if you look at the bureau of labor statistics on inflation Food prices are up 8.8% from March 2021 to 2022. Some of the uh, people that Sean talked to and that reached out to Chris said that one, a vegan woman said produce prices are outrageous, and they are. They're up 8.1%. Another person says that their grocery bill has risen by $75 to $100 every week. Another person said bacon is now five and six dollars instead of three fifty, and bacon and sausage overall is up sixteen point five percent according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Meat is up almost fifteen percent overall. Another woman said, "I used to buy uh, lettuce for ninety nine cents a head. Now it's three dollars a head." And this was kind of interesting. Uh, another reader said, "Well, chicken wings are three times higher," and he said that chicken wings are the mother of all economic barometers. So if they're high. <laughs> That that's bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Imp- Sean had a good idea. He, he didn't want to talk about it in aggregate. He wanted to hear what people had to say. So we put the message out on the subtext and got a lot of. I mean, they're always so helpful. The people that get that. What Sean read saw, saw a lot of was people on fixed incomes, retirees, who mm-hmm. are watching their buying power dwindle. But he also got some, you know, some other things like the guy who can't buy tubes for his guitar amps because right um, the prices have gone so high, partly because of the, the blockade with Russia. Um, but it, but you really did get a sense that people are feeling it. They're feeling it big, mm-hmm. and they don't know what to do. Which I've been saying for a few months, I think this is going to factor into the county executive's election because one of the things we hear all the time is the people in the county administration never think about the taxes. They're about to make a permanent increase to the sales tax and all these people on fixed incomes are dead set against it. It'll be interesting 
to see if Lee Weingart, who the Republican running, and as I said, snowball's chance, is able to, to capitalize on that in such a way where he gets some momentum. And other areas where people complained about or saw inflation, because I don't want to complain, say that's that's too strong. Um, but yeah, medicine and healthcare products, things like prescriptions or, or like contact lens solution or other things that you buy, you know, at the drugstore. Home improvement, paint has gone up. Garden supplies, lawn care services, cleaning supplies, you know, like laundry detergent and so on is up 8.7%. Pet food has jumped nearly 6%. And one of the reasons for this, let's point out, that a lot of employers have been forced to raise wages to get employees. Wages have been stagnant for 20 years, and people getting a a workable income is a good idea. The people who suffer as a result of this are the ones that are on fixed incomes and cannot meet the rising cost. It's Today in Ohio. How does a well-known left-leaning think tank in Northeast Ohio think a bunch of stimulus dollars should be spent? Layla, we have our stimulus watch reporter in the house. We've yes. got the replacement, so we're back on this. Yes, first of all, I just want to take a moment to welcome to our staff reporter Lucas DePrilli, who joins us from the state newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina, where he covered higher education. He's now our new stimulus watch reporter. We're so happy to have him on board. This was his debut story for us. So, yeah. Welcome, Lucas. Uh, Policy Matters, Ohio. They released recommendations Thursday now that ARPA funds are really starting to flow into state and city coffers. And, and frankly, now that we're starting to see some, some ill-advised uses of that money, <coughs> county council <laughs> slush funds, <laughs> um, excuse me, I had a tickle in my throat. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the recommendations uh, from, from the think tank include providing p- premium pay for frontline workers, enforcing laws that bar employers from committing wage theft, providing paid family and medical leave for public employees, helping low-income families and child care workers pay for child care, criminal justice reform measures, um, and investing in mental health resources and things like that. Policy Matters provided examples of programs throughout Ohio and the country that could be used as a foundation for local programs. One example was Franklin County's RISE program, which provides scholarships up to $10,000 per year for low-income families to help help afford child care. And another example was Columbus's program to provide $1,000 signing bonuses to child care workers whose low wages aren't always enough to make ends meet. And Northeast Ohio got a nod in the recommendations as uh, Policy Matters cited Cleveland and Shaker Heights programs that equip first responders with training and resources that they need to manage mental health crises. And Northeast Ohio alone, uh, you know, we're here talking about $1.6 billion in ARPA money. Lucas has another story coming this weekend about how much cities are spending on consultants to help them make these decisions. So we will take all the free advice we can get <laughs> from from Policy Matters and other think tanks. <laughs> but just to be clear, the, the Policy Matters did not recommend slush funds, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> there was and no subhead slush funds. <laughs> I, I have a feeling those slush funds might be in violation of the charter. We'll have to see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A Cleveland attorney used a variation of the dog ate my homework defense as he tried to hold on to his law license. Courtney, what did he claim and did it work? No. So uh, Kenneth Nelson II of Avon Lake tried to... So, so, so he, he's kind of on the hook for these allegations that he didn't put clients' retainer fees into a trust account 
as he's required to do by the state's rules of professional conduct for attorneys. And, um, you know, he basically said that there's an exemption to those rules that lets him hang on to, to the retainer fees as long as paperwork's exchanged with the clients, you know, kind of a, a notice about that. And he uh, produced one fee agreement of 18 and then he said the other 17 agreements were lost in a box that went missing after him and his assistant like fled his downtown office amid the 2020 George George Floyd protests and the court didn't buy it <laughs> yeah I, I mean the, the hardest thing to believe is that he was working on a Saturday right so because that's when the protest was yeah it was it was kind of a lame defense you gotta salute I guess his enterprise but no dice it's today in Ohio. Let's do one more. Today's Earth Day, but Saturday is Record Store Day when people who love analog music on vinyl can get rare releases. Lisa, how many record stores do we have in Northeast Ohio? And I'm sure you remember growing up when they were on every corner. I do, and I'm amazed to find out and gratified to find out that there are still 24 independent record stores in Northeast Ohio, both new and old. Of course, the granddaddy of them all, and I'm very biased because I spent much of my childhood here, was Record Revolution at 1832 Coventry Road. It opened back in 1967, and they used to have several storefronts, and they've shrunk down to one, but they've hung on throughout this, and then they managed to ride the wave of vinyl research in re- recent years. We also have another oldie but goodie, Time Traveler Records in Mar- on Market Street in Akron. They've been open 40 years. And then a couple of new ones. Uh, there's one uh, Shepherd Records at 9712 Madison Avenue in Cleveland that was opened this year by Emma Shepherd, and her dad Scott owns Time Traveler Records in Akron. So yeah, some people are getting into the game as, as new players and managing to you know make money. Any of you listen to vinyl? I still do, absolutely. My, and my, my father collects it, but I do not. <laughs> Who, your husband collects it? Yeah, he does. And yeah. I've got my dad's got a yeah. giant collection. I used to go to stores with him as a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, so and record. Record Revolution, my dad had a huge jazz collection, and he bought a lot of his stuff at Record Revolution. And one day I went in there thumbing through the racks, you know, looking for, you know, some rock and roll album, and the guy says, are you Dr. Garvin's daughter? And I said, yeah, how did you know? And he said, y'all look alike to us. <laughs> Ooh, okay. All right, we'll leave it there. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for a Friday discussion. Thanks, Lisa, Layla, and Courtney, and thank you for listening to this podcast. Come on back Monday. We'll be talking about the news then.